people seem very cross these days. Misinformation is running rampant, they say. Democracy is in danger. Our liberties are in danger. Technology is enslaving us. Speech is being censored. Children are being indoctrinated. Everything on this view is just terrible. Cut a little deeper, however, and you'll discover that some pretty amazing stuff is happening. There are a lot of people with dreams of earth and sky, if I may borrow a phrase from the great physicist Freeman Dyson, who in turn got it from the space visionary Konstantin Salkovsky. It's an exciting time. And there's more reason than ever to believe, as Dyson and Salkovsky did, that our destiny is in the stars. Of course, there are a few steps to go between here and cosmic civilization. Mars, for a start, is never much closer than 40 million miles away. It has no atmosphere to speak of, and a typical nighttime temperature is negative 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Humans don't do so well with cold or isolation or radiation. We don't know how the first spacefarers will do in the face of what's been called the Earth out of view phenomenon. These are all still huge obstacles. There's a lot to overcome. But what we're seeing today, advances in satellite technology, a proliferation of manned space flights, ambitious projects to build factories in space and to return to the moon, these are steps on the path. Welcome to a long overdue space episode of the Tech Policy Podcast. It's not the show's first space law episode, but it's the first one that I, your current host, Corbin Barthold, have done. I'm fortunate to be joined by a guest who has been on most of the other ones. James Dunstan, Tech Freedom's general counsel, has been an actual outer space lawyer for almost 40 years. You can hear him talk about his space law career all the way back in episode number 13 of this podcast. Jim is also my first repeat guest. We had so much fun talking about net neutrality a few months ago. I just had to rope him in for another go. So, Jim, welcome back. Thanks, Gordon. Glad to be back. And um, as much as I love net neutrality, not. Um, I'm much more excited about talking about space than uh, things like Title II and stuff like that. Yes, fantastic. Uh, a little more romantic. And speaking of romantic, great place to start. What could be more romantic than going into space? The so-called billionaire space race has launched. This summer, Richard Branson went into space, albeit barely in his case. Uh, Jeff Bezos went up there. Even William Shatner got in on the act. You would think if there is one thing we can all get behind culturally, it's um, space and, and how amazing it is and how inspiring it is for people to uh, make advances in that field. But uh, not really. There was a lot of snark about these events uh, among the Twitter intelligentsia. So what is your take on all of this? So uh, since we're about to enter the holiday season, I'll, I'll, I'll quote from uh, Dickens and uh, um, Christmas Carol and Tiny Tim. It's, you know, God bless them. God bless them, everyone. Um, I mean, my take on this is, is twofold. One, 
Uh, it's not anything new. Um, there have been people who have opposed you know, us going to space since the very beginning. Um, if you go back and read uh, during the time of Apollo, I mean, granted, it was a very tumultuous time in, in America, obviously, in the late 60s. We had the Vietnam War, we had civil rights um, issues and things like that. But there were an awful lot of people back then who on a strictly sort of um, economic and sociopolitical basis said, well, we shouldn't go to the moon. Um, we, in fact, should clean up all of the problems on Earth first before we go. And fast forward to today, and what are we hearing about these billionaires? Well, they should be spending their money um, solving all the world's problems rather than going into space. And that, of course, is just total and complete hogwash for a lot of reasons. I mean, I love Elon Musk's take uh, every time somebody says, well, you could solve world hunger, Elon, if, if you just gave us 2% of your total wealth. And his response was, you know, show me where how this is going to solve world hunger and I'll sell my stock tomorrow, which, of course, you know, it's true because Elon Musk, you know, you take all of his wealth and it wouldn't solve world hunger. I mean, world hunger is a endemic and, and long, long um, process to every conceive of taking it, you know, uh, taking it away. So how can we think that a single billionaire could do it? But yeah, that's that's kind of what the, you know, what, what the tenor of some people have been. You know, my second response to that is, again, Let's hope that they do this. Um, if you look at every great technical in innovation um, that human beings have ever done, they've almost always ridden on the backs of the rich. Um, I mean, you go back to the beginning of time, you go back more recently. I mean, you know, I, I wrote an article, we can link to it at the bottom of the, of the uh, podcast, um, where I kind of walk through some of them. But if you go back to airlines, um, you know, airlines rode the back of the rich in the beginning. Um, and in fact, the price of a, a cross-country ticket now is surprisingly, not surprisingly, one-tenth of what it was back when only the rich could fly. Um, a little closer to my, my heart, I was on the team that won the very first cellular license uh, from the FCC uh, for MCI back then. And the market plan then assumed a maximum of 10 million cell phones. And at the time, they cost $5,000 and they weighed five pounds. Now, of course, they're well under $500 and you, in fact, can almost get a phone free these days. And you're not paying 30 cents a minute. You're paying you know, 50 or whatever dollars a month for completely unlimited voice, text, and, and data. But again, that was all driven by the early adopters who tend to be rich. Space is going to be the exact same way. And if we don't want that to happen, then we don't want space to happen, plain and simple. Yeah, I mean, if you really want to get deep and philosophical about it, at, at, at its core, if you're truly against space, you're kind of against, you're almost against humanity. I mean, I'm sure that's sweeping with an awfully broad brush, but at its core, there is a certain Malthusian... Uh, resources are limited. Everything is a zero-sum game. We're fighting over a set pie attitude to it. I mean, that's what is at the core of most objections, philosophically speaking. And if you believe in uh, 
ultimately getting out. And uh, again, to use the really grandiose term, you know, that our destiny is among the stars. You have a growth mindset. You believe that we can do ever more with ever less. You might notice uh, even to use a silly example, but uh, that aluminum soda cans, you know, use 50 or 60 or 70% less material than they did 50 years ago, that it's not all a set pie, that humans are our best resource and all that kind of fun stuff. And so at the end of the day, it's almost a battle of philosophies. And it's sad to see that on Twitter, the sort of uh, Malthusian uh, limits are everywhere attitude of negativity reigns. It's unfortunate. Yeah, that's why I loved you, you know, uh, quoting or at least paraphrasing Freeman Dyson at the beginning. I mean, I love Freeman. I, I worked with him for a number of years, along with Jerry O'Neill at the Space Studies Institute in Princeton. Um, and these visionaries get it. They completely understand um, that once you break out tackles of the gravity well on Earth uh, and begin to tap into the resources of space, that pie isn't unlimited, you know, isn't limited. It in fact is gluttonous. I mean, there is so much out there in space in terms of resources, everything from free energy from the sun to precious metals in the asteroids, such that wealth as this world has never ever seen or could ever see. Um, one thing I always tell people is, let's just remember one thing, that we've been mining asteroids on earth for several thousand years. I mean, most of the precious metal deposits in the earth are in fact crashed asteroids. I mean, the huge copper basins up in Canada was a gigantic you know, um, primordial asteroid filled with copper that slammed into the Hudson Basin up there. So we've been mining asteroids you know, for, for, for you know, thousands of years. We just haven't realized it. And now we're going hopefully to the asteroids rather than waiting for the asteroids to whack us and then mine them from there. Yeah, I can't recommend Freeman Dyson's work enough to our uh, listeners. You want to talk about a visionary. I mean, back as early as I, I want to say the 70s, he was thinking through, uh, well, what would humanity's fate be going out to basically the heat death of the universe and coming up with theories about how we could basically encode intelligence in basically like cosmic dust that would use less and less energy and would basically slow down and have an infinite existence even in a finite universe. So if that doesn't kind of blow your mind, I don't really know what to do for you. Um, and you know, we'll have to do a separate episode about like where are all the Dyson spheres and the Fermi paradox. Um, Dyson spheres, for those of you who don't know, being the concept that you can harvest energy directly from a star by putting basically a, a film or a shell around it. Um, so Freeman Dyson, if you take nothing else from this episode, go check out Freeman Dyson. Um, and of course, this, this space race of billionaires visiting space, um, that's the headline thing. It grabs attention and it grabs most of the snark. But um, and, and as you noted, they will probably bring innovation in its turn. I mean, if you ever get your vitals tracked at a hospital, you have the space program indirectly to thank. I mean, that kind of technology comes out of it in surprising ways. But there's also just direct benefit going on right now. So let's turn to, you know, the race to provide satellite internet in a way that is actually affordable and low latency and um, ubiquitous. So Elon Musk's SpaceX is leading the way here with their Starlink system. 
Um, could you tell us what is going on in this market and what is Starlink doing? And in particular, you know, what makes it different from past satellite internet? Because I mean, we've had that for a while. What's what's changing now? Yeah, so, so, so the big change um, from a sort of laws of physics standpoint is, is that prior to Starlink, all the satellite, satellite internet was based um, on geostationary satellites, those up 22,300 miles in space. Large satellites, very large, fairly large throughput. But the problem is, is at 22,300 miles, you've got a delay. You've got a second up delay to get up to geostationary orbit and, and, and a, a second down delay. Um, some of us are old enough to remember actually doing telephone calls over satellites to, you know, I had clients in Alaska and, and it, it got to be sort of a, you know, where you had to start using over again um, because you, you had to make sure that you didn't step on the, on the person. It's the same way, you know, with data. Now it's, it's a little bit less, you know, important because well, of all the buffering and things that we can do. But the fact of the matter is, um, the Starlink satellites, rather than up at 22,300 miles, they're down at 500 kilometers, which is almost skimming the top of the atmosphere when you think about it. They're very, very low. And so, so once you do that, once you do the math, you realize that, that, that you can reduce your latency um, so you can get data through much quicker. The second thing is there's a whole bunch of them. I mean, we're talking about thousands and thousands of satellites. The second big problem with geostationary um, internet is the fact that going back to our pie, it is a finite pie. There's only so much bandwidth that you can push through that satellite, which means that every concurrent user takes away a little bit more of that pie of bandwidth until if you're successful, you become a victim of your own success. Because once too many people start eating at that pie, everything slows down. The great thing about Starlink is because there's so many satellites, they literally can switch from one satellite to, to another as they're screaming overhead at 17,500 miles. Beautiful ballet. If you've ever seen some of the uh, um, you know, online uh, uh, graphics, uh, animations of what the Starlink constellation looks like, it's absolutely gorgeous. Um, but its ability to reuse satellites and reuse frequencies means that the total throughput in the Starlink system is so much higher than anything else. So that, that, that's the first thing. The second thing is, of course, what Starlink brings to the table is SpaceX. It brings a launch provider, which can provide launches. Well, it can provide launches for free, essentially, although there, my understanding is, is, is there is a contract between Starlink and, and SpaceX. Nonetheless, it's a highly subsidized launch. I mean, the biggest cost of deploying a satellite system, a multi-thousand fleet of satellites is your launch cost. Well, if your you know, right-hand brother um, provides you that launch service for near free or very, very cheap, suddenly the cost to do it goes down. But here's the other thing, and this is a fairly recent um, thing that I discovered, and I discovered it through a, a, a friend, uh, a PhD NASA scientist, who took a look at the cost of the satellites themselves, okay? So we got cheap launch costs, but what we also have with Starlink is mass-produced satellites. Smaller satellites, yes, each of them, but they're all, they're all an assembly line. They're not hand-produced. And so he calculated that the, the cost per megabyte going through these satellites as compared to a big geostationary satellite 
is two orders of magnitude or 100 times less cost to build these satellites on a throughput basis than, than geostationary satellites. A hundred times cheaper. That's the game changer for Starlink. Excellent. Well, um, obviously you cannot just launch stuff into space, at least not from American shores. Um, although there was that guy who had the rocket out in Nevada who was going to prove the earth was flat. Putting him aside. Um, you can't just... <laughs> and, the, and the earth did put him aside, by the way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you, you cannot do it without regulatory approval. So you've just explained the exciting stuff SpaceX is doing with its satellite system. But of course, it, it needs the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, to approve uh, that system. And it needs the, uh, the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, to approve the launches. Um, so what is going on in that area? Um, what do we see in the regulatory approval? How is that going? Is... Um, I think the, the term you might use is state capacity. Is the American government keeping up in facilitating all of this? Yeah, I mean, this is something that I've been working on uh, you know, literally almost my entire career, and especially over the last you know, decade to, to 15 years. And that is, we have a regulatory system in the, US, in the United States. I mean, you talked about the FCC for frequencies. You talked about the FAA for launches. You, you also have NOAA for remote sensing. You have NASA for anything related to NASA stuff. You've got DOD. You know, there isn't a one-stop shop for anything space in this country. Um, and so it's, it's a very diverse and, and oftentimes conflicting regulatory environment. But more importantly, it's a regulatory environment that was developed in the 1980s. And what's important there is in the 1980s, on average, we saw about a half dozen to a dozen launches a year, six to 12. That's all you got. Um, and, and then satellites were big. There were these big geostationary satellites I was talking about earlier. They cost hundreds of millions of dollars. They took three to five years to develop. And so you had a, a process, a regulatory process that assumed only a few launches a year and assumed a very long timeline. Well, now you've got situations where people could go from literally the back of an envelope at a bar in the midnight to flying in space within a couple of months um, because so much things has, has advanced. Basically, the computer revolution that hit at the, you know, the PCs in the late 70s, early 80s has now hit space. And what that means is that things can be done so much cheaper, so much faster than ever before because of miniaturization, the CubeSat you know, phenomenon, these 10, 10 centimeter around cubes that you can now fit extraordinarily powerful computers into. Um, it's just amazing. But the problem is the regulatory systems assume that you're three years out and you're only gonna launch a couple of times a year. And so the regulatory systems are basically broken right now. Now, the FCC is pedaling as fast as it can. Um, FAA is pedaling as fast as it can. NOAA is pedaling as fast as it can. They're trying to sort of both get the backlog of all these applications done at the same time trying to rewrite the rules, but that just takes time. And that's really frustrating for, for a lot of people, a lot of people who want to get in space because they've got that great idea on the back of the envelope. They can get the, the money to do it now because it doesn't cost $10 million. Now it only costs $100,000 or $1 million to test that into space. 
And then they hit the brick, brick wall of, of regulatory friction. And that's one of the things I've really been trying to break down over the last decade is finding a way how we can get this stuff done faster. Now, again, FCC is moving as quick as it can. It's, it's pedaling it as fast as it can, but it's just inundated. Just last week, new applications for 38,000 new satellites were filed. I mean, my gosh, that's just draw drop, dropping. Um, just to put it in context, currently there are less than 5,000 operational satellites. Most of those have been launched in the last year and a half to two years. Now add 38,000 satellites on top of that. How you regulate that is going to be a huge challenge. And we'll talk a little bit more towards the end on, on some ways around it. But that's the big challenge. That's the biggest challenge for me as a space lawyer is how do I counsel my clients in my private practice and influence policy you know, with my Tech Freedom hat on to try to reduce this friction in the regulatory environment? Yeah, I think this is really something uh, to worry about. And to preface it, it's not about, this is, uh, this is not an attack on administrators at the FCC or the FAA, but it is something ab about the way our government has been set up and, and where we are in our maturation as a, as a society versus say other countries. And I'm channeling another visionary thinker here, Balaji Srinivas, and he talks about the fact that our state apparatus is largely a product of the 1930s, and it looks like that. It has a vision of industrial planning that is sort of like that, or, or keyed to that, shall we say. And we are heading into a time of great innovation and great decentralization. So the FAA is not set up to regulate a uh, society where drones are ubiquitous. It's meant to regulate a world where there's like Boeing and Airbus. And you get the, when you need something, you get the executive from the two companies in the room and you browbeat them or whatever. It's just, it's not set up for sort of generation 2.0, 3.0, whatever these technologies. And it's a concern that other states that are setting up their apparatus now uh, can be basically more nimble than we are. And we need to keep up with that and think that through. And, and, that, and that's the largest danger of, of this. It's not just, it takes too long to get this done. And it's not sort of the opportunity costs and the time value of money of the, of the slow speed of regulatory process. It's the literal, it's the offshoring of our entire space economy and the threat that that poses. Because quite frankly, you're absolutely right. There are other uh, jurisdictions out there. There are other states out there who are much more willing to accommodate innovation and speed in these things. And, and, and what do we risk as a country? We risk losing that tax base. We risk losing that revenue base. And more importantly, we risk losing literally the high ground of innovation in space to other countries, uh, many of which don't care about. Um, a lot of these issues. So, um, I mean, you know, obviously there's China out there has made no bones about the fact that it wants to be, you know, the winner on the high frontier. It wants to offer um, ubiquitous uh, broadband throughout the world. Um, and it's not going to let a few things, and we'll talk about it later, like, uh, you know, environmental policy stand in its way um, of doing that. So, so we run the real risk if we don't 
reduce some of this regulatory friction to just losing our best minds to countries, you know, they're just going to go offshore. Well, let's dive into the weeds on that right now. Um, it wouldn't be the tech policy podcast if we didn't wonk out a little bit. Um, what happens with the state apparatus I just described? Well, when you get down into the weeds, it's individual uh, instances of rent seeking can really clog up a system and an accumulation of them. And, and often actually in any isolated instance, it sounds kind of reasonable. And then it's the accumulation of these um, kluges as we like to talk about in the system that, that basically causes everything to break down. So two instances that we have that are worth speaking about right now is uh, number one, tech freedom, of course, we filed a brief in the DC circuit that maybe you could tell us a bit about that involves whether the National Environmental Policy Act applies in outer space. Of course it must, right? Because it's got environmental in, in the name and everything that is environmental in the name is, is good, I say facetiously, and maybe we can explore why that's not actually the case. Um, and then I'll throw a second one at you, which is, you know, one, one thing I find disappointing is the system is set up that even the, the really aggressive innovators are incentivized to try and kneecap each other in the regulatory process. So in the NEPA case, we've got Viasat, which um, I, I'd like them to be in that bucket, but that's an open question. But nobody would question that Amazon is in the bucket of aggressive, uh, fast charging, innovating company. And yet they and SpaceX are in front of the FCC making very rent-seeky arguments, talking about, well, do you have FAA approval and all that? Um, so two cases for you, maybe we'll break them down into separate questions, but uh, could you tell us about these, these regulatory issues? Yeah, yeah. Well, so let's, let's start with that, like we like to call it, Space NEPA. Um, and, and yeah, so, so uh, Tech Freedom, we filed a brief, which you mainly authored, Corman, it was a great brief. Um, the issue is as follows, um, SpaceX received authority from the FCC to modify its existing licenses to move down into these lower orbits, you know, the 550 kilometer orbit that I talked about earlier, a bunch of its satellites. Viasat came in and opposed it on a couple of grounds, so did DISH. Um, and then Viasat sort of at not the 11th hour, but maybe at 1035 or something at night, um, suddenly raised this issue, well, um, the FCC hasn't, hasn't properly done an environmental assessment under NEPA, the Na National Environmental Policy Act. And I always emphasize policy because NEPA has absolutely no substantive standards what's, whatsoever. It's a, you know, it's a completely procedural. And so the FCC in their order um, actually spent a fair amount of time um, on it, and they sort of walked through all of the environmental issues that that, that VSAT um, raised it. And they said, no, um, we've done the equivalent of a NEPA because we've walked through all of this. But in doing so, you know, they dropped one sentence there that in the order that says, you know, we're not sure that NEPA even applies to space, but just in case, Here's four pages on, uh, on why we've done the assessment. Well, you know, I looked at that and I went, they missed it. You know, they, they missed the chance to just say flat out, no, NEPA doesn't apply to space. And so um, I convinced you and I convinced Bear and I convinced all of us at Tech Freedom that this is was, this was an important enough issue. Uh, to take up. And so we wrote that, that amicus brief to the DC circuit and said, you know, stop right there. Don't even start this whole analysis about whether or not 
what you, you know, the process that you went through was close enough to an environmental assessment to meet NEPA. NEPA doesn't apply. Um, I mean, I think it's highly unlikely the court will even touch on that issue in its decision uh, because essentially all the parties kind of punted on it because they went right to the, 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 the sort of, uh, you know, the substantive argument. But I think it's an important brief for us to have filed because this is not going to go away. This is going to come back because this will become, if left unchecked, the rent-seeking vehicle that every competitor will use here on out. Because if you can hamstring a first mover in anything related to space at the FCC by demanding a full-blown environmental assessment, you know, those take many, many months, if not years, to complete, then you've just you know, shackled them down, pun fully intended, back to earth. Because and, and that will allow you to catch up. And so at some point, this issue is gonna have to be raised at its at its fundamental level. And very quickly, the argument we, we make is um, under US law, uh, US laws are not applied extraterritorially outside the United States, unless the law specifically says that it is. I mean, it's, it's sort of boilerplate law. And since NEPA doesn't talk about outer space at all, and, you know, and just talks about you know, the environment without sort of categorizing where to begin and where it ends, there's, I think there's a very, very strong argument that NEPA doesn't apply. Uh, and one of the things I particularly am interested in is the timing of this. I mean, uh, uh, NEPA was passed in 1969, right? What was happening in 1969? Well, 1969 was the space race. It was Apollo. But more importantly, it was on the heels of the 1967 Outer Space Treaty. The United States Senate had gone through months and months of hearing and preparation to, to provide its adv advice and consent on the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, which, by the way, was so important that President Johnson convinced a sitting United States Supreme Court justice to retire from the bench to take on take up the mantle of getting the Outer Space Treaty negotiated first internationally and then passed in the United Senate. So to say that Congress wasn't thinking about space in 1969, there was space all over the place. We had fins on cars, right? I mean, you know, there, there's not, I, I would argue there's not a time in our history that our elected officials were not more in tune with outer space than in, in the late 60s in 67 through 69. And so we make the argument on our brief, you've got to take that in, in, in consideration. Congress clearly could have added space to NEPA if it had wanted to. And by the way, it does it in other statutes. There's a provision in the patent law, by the way, that talks about our space. There's a provision in the criminal law, you know, section 18 of, of the United States code that specifically talks about crimes in space. The fact you know, that- If there's one thing I learned from the case, it's yeah. that if you punch someone in the face on yes. an American spacecraft, what law governs? Go yes. ahead. Yes. <laughs> so, so Congress knows how to do it and it didn't with NEPA. And therefore we should just stop the analysis right there and say, you know, no more NEPA do doesn't apply. Now, does that mean that we aren't interested in the environmental impacts of space? Absolutely we are. The United States has the most, most rigorous orbital debris regulations around. The FCC is diligent in most cases. I've had my problems with them in the past on some things, but they do a good job of requiring people to demonstrate that, that their satellite constellations aren't gonna, aren't gonna be a hazard um, to the space environment. 
But do they have to jump through all the hoops of NEPA? No, that's our argument. Yeah, I it's before uh, people like write me angry letters saying I want to like destroy the environment. I mean, the thing about NEPA is it is it is um, one of the you know infinite totems of the hypertrophic growth of regulatory programs and the way that things start out as a good idea and then gain their own constituencies and grow into monsters. And in the case of NEPA, if you look back, early environmental assessments were like 10 pages. They were the kind of thing that almost anybody, you know, can get behind it. it, it there was common sense driving the initial impulse. And now today it is an, a total NIMBY cudgel. And it is what business rivals use to attack each other. Because basically um, you cannot literally just go in and say, well, we as a business are disadvantaged by this fast moving competitor, NEPA, uh, which by the way, you can almost do with CEQA, the California equivalent. Um, but if you say, well, we care so much about the environment, the court basically has to take you at your word. And so that's what businesses do. So if there's one overriding fact to know about the NEPA challenge in this case, it's what is the ultimate goal of the party that is invoking NEPA? So you have a party who's saying NEPA to slow the launch of satellites and their ultimate goal is to launch satellites. Um, and I think that's a good segue into the other case, which is, um, you know, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk are kind of, uh, at, you know, having a having a hissy fit with each other. Um, they are rivals. They are competitors in a in a way you you love to see it. This is a good thing. This is healthy competitive rivalry. But you have Amazon going into, or I'm sorry, Amazon space, uh, you know, arm going into the FCC and saying, wah, 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 uh, is SpaceX up on its FAA compliance? Well, what's their ultimate goal? It's to do the exact same thing SpaceX is doing. So I really hate that you get these competitors who are, they're, they're having this great healthy rivalry in other places, you know, in the market, launching, innovating, all that. That's awesome. But the way the regulations are set up, it incentivizes them to turn that energy on the completely counterproductive project of, well, let me fly spec whether my competitor has dotted the T's or <laughs> crossed the T's and dotted the I's. Yeah, and, and, and you know, on one level, I would say, yeah, you know, nothing new under the sun here. I mean, you know, obviously we, we you know, um, um, you know, there's a great quote about, you know, building moats around your business. Everybody wants to find a way to build regulatory moats that nobody can get across. And so it's an, it's an age old, um, you know, occurrence. Um, you know, one of the things that I would say is, you know, when it gets to these, these sort of intramural fights between SpaceX and Amazon, Blue and SpaceX, Kuiper and Starlink, you know, we sit on the sidelines for those, you know, at Tech Freedom, um, you know, because because I don't want to, you know, I don't want to fan any of those flames. Um, I, you know, I, I think they all should just take a chill pill and, you know, and relax a little bit. I think the rhetoric on both sides 
of these arguments is, you know, gets, gets ramped up really, you know, too much. I mean, Elon can be his own, own worst enemy sometimes. And so can Jeff Bezos. I mean, they, you know, they, they just love to sort of one up each other on, uh, you know, on Twitter. So I, I don't have any particular interest in that. What I have a, a very big interest in is trying to find the way to, to break down those, you know, you know the, those moats and the, and those regulatory, rent sinking approaches um, to, to cut through them as quickly as we can and just say, okay, now, you know, just call it for what it is. I mean, I mean, you're just trying to handicap a competitor, you know, goodbye. We're not going to, you know, we're not going to listen to this, but of course it's all simpler said than done. And, you know, you know, whether or not your ox is getting gored depends on which side of the ox you're on, I guess. <laughs> well, one thing that is, bothersome to me moving from regulation to the media in all of this is obviously I'm a clearly a tech cheerleader. I mean, I'm making no bones about that. My, I've put my stake in the ground, but a lot in the, a lot of people in the media and even in the tech media, the people who's like, they professionally cover tech, they have this adversarial stance to tech innovation. And one mode that that often takes um, really smart people who do this, and I find it baffling, but uh, you know, the number of, of supposedly deep think pieces that complain about some new technology and the ultimate take home is, well, it's not perfect right now. So bang, um, they're just infinite. I'm not gonna name publications, but they're, they're the highbrow ones. They're the ones that actually get you know, all of the cachet. Um, and with SpaceX, and Starlink, the way I often see that framed is, oh, well, you're providing internet to remote places, but it's not immediately affordable to the people, you know, the, the, the bottom, you know, the global south. Uh, it's not affordable. It's uh, still, you know, a $500 startup cost. Um, why is it not perfect immediately? Ha ha, case closed. What do you have to say to that? Um, but there is a, 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 an underlying issue here, and it is true you know, that Starlink is currently a $500 uh, you know, upfront fee. They are selling that at a loss. Musk wants to get it down to 250. Uh, but you know, as with so many of his claims, you know, Musk, I, I do think, has a degree of sort of fake it till you make it, and maybe he will make it, and maybe he won't. Uh, he has said, you know, that Starlink's number one goal is just don't go bankrupt. Um, so it's big, it's ambitious. I really like that. But let's let's be realistic. You know, what are its chances of success? Because we live in this world where for for people to stay sort of cheerleading tech and optimistic about tech the way that I am, uh, you need to keep proving those highbrow people wrong. You need to keep bringing the cost down. There's high expectations. You need to keep innovating. Um, so all of that, let me wrap it up with a bow and just say, what do you think the prospects are of this satellite internet? Do you think we will get there where it's ubiquitous? Is it going to be something that gives the global poor uh, readily accessible internet? Um, or is it just going to be sort of a supplement giving backhaul? You know, look into your crystal ball for us. Yeah. So, so the first thing I, I, I would respond to is probably the most prophetic thing that I have ever learned in my entire life was an ad agency 
senior executive once said to me the following, everyone is looking for the completely innovative idea that has withstood the test of time. And if you think about it, it's absolutely true. I mean, we want this great innovation, but then we start nitpicking it by saying, but this is, hasn't happened before, or this, you know, it has somehow withstood the test of time. Well, you know, by definition, innovation hasn't withstood the test of time. So, you know, with that construct, let, let me say this. Um, again, we've talked about the, the cost of the satellites themselves coming down by two orders of magnitude. Huge, huge difference. Um, yes, the price of the terminals will come down, although the latest reports are that uh, supply chain is absolutely eating um, Starlink's lunch right now, that they are, are having a heck of a time getting chips. They've got to ramp up, like everything else, they've got to ramp up their, their manufacturing um, to be able to bring the cost, cost down. So it's going to be offered you know, at somewhat of a, a loss for, for some period of time, one. Two, it is not going to be affordable to pick your favorite indigenous people, you know, somewhere in South America, you know, whose annual income is, you know, $14 a year. I mean, it obviously can't reach to the, the very, very poorest on a straight sort of market-based economy. So what do you, you know, what does that mean? Well, that means if we, if we really want it, then we're going to have to subsidize it somehow. And, and we have to figure out what those subsidization mechanisms are going to be that also don't inhibit the, the price reductions that, that they still have to get. They still have to get another order of magnitude out to make it. And so that's going to be, you know, that's going to be the question. The second, will it work? We already talked about the fact that there's multiple satellites at any given time. So you don't have the throughput issues that you do with, with traditional satellite delivered broadbands, which means the pie is much, much bigger. You keep launching satellites, you make the pie bigger, total bandwidth available. Um, in my crystal ball, I think what you will see is a lot of early adopters in uh, in rural and in suburban areas um, uh, getting Starlink because they're early adopters and they you know they think it's cool and whatnot. Gradually, I think over a decade, it's going to morph itself into being almost completely a rural based because you know even at um you know even at some of the things that we're talking about even using we'll talk a little bit later you know quickly about the 70 gigahertz proceeding you know which can get a gigabit you know over satellite um even using that you're still always going to be playing catch up with fiber to the home and that and the huge pipes that we're going to we're going to see being deployed over the next decade in this country. So I see it as a, a, a absolute innovation revolution for rural America. Um, you know, in my private practices, you know, I, I represent the Navajo. Um, they've already got like 700 people signed up Starlink and they're signing up more on, literally on, on a daily basis. Um, there and so we're going to see a lot of really remote places that are going to have cool little satellite dishes on them. But eventually, I think it is going to be because it is the best solution for the most rural areas of the country. That's where it's going to have its greatest value. And again, the problem there is we're going to have to make sure we we figure out a subsidy mechanism for the, those that truly can't afford this to be able to get it. So we've talked 
plenty now about uh, Starlink and Tech Freedom's brief in the DC circuit. Um, and I should mention oral argument in that is coming up and you are going to attend and, and stay tuned on that. That should be interesting. Um, what else is going on with tech freedom and space? We are very active there right now. So uh... yeah, it's gonna be a really busy end of the year for us. They said that the oral argument in, in Viasat case is December 3rd. Um, also on that day, um, the FCC has got comments in, in what's known as the 70 gigahertz proceeding. Um, no, I'm talking about diving into the weeds and getting totally geeked out. Yeah, Just I have so a challenge for you. Yeah. yeah, what's the two sentence explanation of why that is important? Because 70 gigahertz is the last great spectrum available for space use. Um, because of weird things called you know, oxygen absorption and water absorption, it just so happens that that 70, you know, the, the 70 and 80 gigahertz range, um, and, which is already millimeter, it's already the very, very highest ranges of frequencies that we can use currently. Anything above that, basically, you literally get atomic collisions of your uh, of your wavelength. And so 70 is the now last is, is rate. this for us to talk with satellites? Or is this for the satellites to talk to each other? Yes, and yes. Okay. Um, it, it's great both for satellite link because again, this is the also the one set of frequencies where you could push that much you can push gigabit a second data through this. And so that's that's important. The other really important thing about this particular proceeding is currently the way the FCC regulates this is in a very different way. It regulates essentially anybody who wants a 70 gigahertz license currently gets a nationwide non-exclusive license and then has to register all of its locations into this database. And then that is coordinated by a third party database manager. And so it's basically regulation by database, which has worked so, you know, worked very well. And we think could be could be used even more, you know, dynamically. You know, they call it 3D um, um, database regulation. It's really an innovative approach to regulation that rather than you have to go to the FCC and get a separate license for every single one of your sites that you want to do, which takes weeks and weeks and months and months, you just put it into a database, plugs it in, within milliseconds, you get a clean, you get a green light or a red light as to whether or not you can put your station there. And once you put your station there, then you're in the database and everybody else has to protect you. I mean, it's a really, really innovative and, and cost effective way of regulating. And so we're gonna be coming in talking about that. Uh, the next thing that's gonna happen is uh, New Year's Eve, December 31, hopefully a little bit before that, um, we're gonna be filing comments with the White House's Office of Science Technology Policy, OSTP. I they think we should out, file at 11.59. What are you talking about? We'll have um, our hats I, on. I, I have been known to do that. Um, uh, you know, I, I tend not, not to like to subject my family to that, however. Um, but they've done, they've put a roadmap out on orbital debris um, and they want comments on it. And so we're going to come in. I've been working on orbital debris now for, you know, again, 15 plus years, almost 20 years on these issues. Um, and and we're going to, I think, come up with some a little bit of, uh, of innovative way of thinking about orbital debris and mainly um, 
remediation. You know, we've talked about mitigation. You know, you got to make safe satellites. You know, not have them explode, things like that. We're actually going to have to go up and start getting stuff out of there, uh, cleaning it up, uh, and some innovative approaches to do that. And, and of course, the main thing about this is, you know, it's in the news right now. I mean, Cosmos, you know, fourteen oh eight. Um, uh, you know, those of viewers who ha haven't heard about it, um, the Russians launched an uh, anti-satellite weapon, um, um, you know, from an, an airplane, uh, basically, and it blew up this old derelict uh, Cosmos 1408 satellite, creating currently they're tracking 1500 pieces of debris. If it's going to be anything like the, the prior ones, that's going to expand to between 3500 and 5000. So we got all this new shrapnel up there. And so we can do all we want, you know, to, to sort of, you know, work around the edges on orbital debris, but we've got to have an absolute firm national policy, you know, that, that says that you can't go blowing stuff up in space. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's got to be almost the level of, of the 67 hour space treaty of no nukes in orbit. You know, we've got to have an approach, you know, as a government that says, you know, no creating debris deliberately in, or, in orbit. So we're going to be doing that. Um, by the end of December. And the last thing I've got uh, is a manuscript for a, a series, a really fascinating series on interstellar flight by a whole bunch of really, really smart people. I'm, I'm really honored to be asked to do the legal one, but they've asked me to say, to, to, to discuss uh, legal governance of interstellar flights. Um, the idea of, okay, you know, we want to go from here to Alpha Centauri. We haven't got Star Trek warp drives yet. It's going to be a multi-generational vehicle. How does it govern itself? And so I'm, you know, neck deep in, in, in writing that. So it has really, you know, obviously, this is a lot of philosophy, you know, history, political science uh, in with space law at, at the same time. And so I'm excited about that. That's due in February, I think, for a print sometime in May of, of 2022. So we've got we've got a lot on our on our plate, um, and uh, you know. Uh, I'm pedaling as fast as I can, and, uh, you know, on this stuff. Well, the the interstellar space governance chapter uh, recommends itself almost to like a science fiction novel. It makes me think of like Tau Zero or something. Yep. Um, which will segue me into my last question for you because you have written. Uh, science fiction yourself. Feel free to plug your book when I'm done uh, <laughs> or any of your work. Um, I doubt that you would do that if you didn't have a romantic view of, of space. So, you know, what drives you? What, what about space uh, inspires you and gets you um, up in the morning to go talk about, you know, the 70 gigahertz band? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I often, I, I often refer to myself as a, I'm an orphan of Apollo. Uh, which means I am exactly of that age where I was sentient enough to, you know, uh, watch Neil and Buzz walk on the moon. Um, and I drank the Kool-Aid, in this case, the Tang, um, that said that um, by the time I was an adult, I, I could go into space and all of my friends could go into space. Um, and they lied to us. <laughs> you know, they, they completely lied to us. They, you know, for my generation, the, the, the chance of becoming an astronaut, um, you had a lower probability um, of becoming an astronaut than you did of becoming a player in the NBA 
Well, you were um, promised flying cars and you got a hundred or whatever yeah, characters as Peter Thiel says. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, you know, I, I'm of that age, you know, and and I grew up reading reading a lot of science fiction. I mean, I'm, I'm, a, you know, I'm a child of Asimov and, and Heinlein. Um, I really like a couple of, you know, somewhat more contemporary. Um, Alan Steele did a great series, um, you know, one called Lunar Descent and one called Orbital Decay. Um, I really liked sort of the near-term science fiction stuff more, the what's just over the horizon, um, you know, for us as opposed to the, you know, going out interstellar type of things and, you know, and, 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 and those sort of worlds. But that's what, you know, that's what I grew up with. Um, I grew up in a very, very, you know, science-oriented house. And so I've always, always just been really attracted to, um, you know, to space. And, and uh, you know, that's what's kind of, driven me. I, I often say that, you know, I spend more of my time with engineers than with lawyers, and I'm fine with that, because um, I truly am, because engineers are a really different breed than, <laughs> than lawyers in terms of the way they think. But I, I think it's really helpful to think like an engineer as much as we can. So I'm, I'm optimistic. I mean, this is, we are really at the time today where I thought we were going to be when I graduated in law school, you know, 38 years ago. Um, I graduated right after the first um, space shuttles had gone up. And we had these things called the getaway special, the gas cans, where there was going to be commercial offerings to do experiments on the shuttle. Um, and there was this whole new you know, thing, this, what the shuttle was going to bring us, which, of course, after the Challenger accident, it didn't. It didn't bring us anything other than a billion dollars a launch, you know, and even fewer astronauts up there. Uh, but now, you know, we're there and, and I'm, I'm just very excited that in what's not the twilight of my career, my career, but in the mature parts of my career now, I'm now really getting to do the, the stuff that I'd hope to do, you know, as a fresh young face coming out of law school. Well, I like that you mentioned sort of over the horizon sci-fi because I can balance it out and say, I'm a fan of the really, really uh, out there stuff. Like I mentioned Tau Zero yeah. and, you know, they, so the premise is they have a ship, it, it uses a Bussard ramjet, like it, it captures tiny little specks of hydrogen in space and collects them all together and creates a, like a warp drive and it breaks and they just go faster and faster and faster and faster until time starts to dilate within the ship and it all goes completely nuts. You know, they go way out into the, the unfathomable uh, cosmic future. Um, so I'll leave you with that mind expanding thought. Uh, hopefully we can continue to work together on these things, Jim. Um, I'm glad that we are where you would hope to be uh, earlier in your career. And I'm, I'm glad that I just get to be um, entitled and hop right in way earlier in my career at that kind of stuff. It's been a lot of fun and I hope to continue it which uh, allows me to tie off by saying, you know, we've talked some about Tech Freedom's work on this episode. And if you think the Malthusians of the world are wrong and you'd like to help us promote the progress of technology, please consider giving Tech Freedom a tax-deductible donation. Um, you can also donate, of course, just because you like this podcast. Uh, you can find us at techfreedom.org. There's a nice purple donate button right at the top uh, right of the homepage. Um, so please do consider that. I, we, we're getting toward the holiday season, as you mentioned, Jim. So mm -hmm. for those of you who are taking care of your charitable giving. Anyway, one more time, Jim, this was so much fun. Um, I'm Corbin Barthold, Internet Policy Council. 
I've been joined by James Dunson, our general counsel here at Tech Freedom. This has been the Tech Policy Podcast. Until next time. Thanks, Carbon. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.